invite you to turn to Luke chapter 23 this morning. And as we continue, famous last words from the cross. I spoke some famous last words this morning. I told the ushers, I'll cue you. And then I got into my uh, prayer time. So at the pastor's moment, I forgot to cue them. I looked up and there was the deacon in his place and the ushers were in their place. And man, it just worked out great. So thank you guys so very much. Famous last words from the cross. When the evangelist Dwight L. Moody was on his deathbed with his family surrounding him, he cried out in this critical moment, earth recedes and heaven opens before me. If this is death, it is sweet. There is no valley here. God is calling and I must go. As Jesus hung on the cross, as life started slipping away from him, there came that moment when he realized it was time to go. Before he died, Jesus spoke seven times. We call these seven statements, seven last words from the cross. He spoke a word of grace. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He spoke a word of promise to the thief. Today, you you will be with me in paradise. He spoke a word of concern as he looked down and saw his mother. And as he looked down and saw uh, John, he said, woman, behold your son. And then pointing to, he was pointing to John. And then he spoke to John, behold your mother. He spoke a word of forsakenness. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He spoke a word of thirst that we examined last week when he said simply, I thirst. And then his last two words came seconds before his death. Today we're looking at, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, depending on whose list you read, this could be the sixth word or it could be listed as the seventh word. Words six and seven are often interchanged. In fact, we see in Luke's gospel today that he he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. But then if you look at John chapter 19, as we will next week, as we look at at, uh, it is finished, John says at that point, that was his his last. And so these are interchanged. Don't, Don't get hung up on the word order. Instead, explore the spiritual significance and and see what God has to say to your life today as we look at this word spoken from the cross that challenges our commitment. And remember, these weren't truly his last words, were they? Because he conquered death and he arose from the grave and he made bunches of post-resurrection appearances and he he spoke multiple times, many of which are not recorded uh, in our Gospels before he returned to heaven. So let's read beginning in verse 44 of Luke 23. And now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness all over the earth until the ninth hour. And the sun was darkened, obscured, and the veil of the temple was torn in two, was torn down the middle. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands... I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. What do we see here? Well, first of all, Jesus enjoys restored fellowship with his heavenly Father. When God turned his back on the sin that was laid on him for the iniquity of us all, that was laid on our suffering servant, Jesus, for the very first time in all of eternity, experienced that separation from God that happens to us because sin separates us from God. That moment was pure hell for him, pure torment, because that's exactly what hell is. Hell is eternal separation from God. 
It is a place of darkness. The earth experienced that darkness for those three hours. It is a place of torment. It is a place of thirst where your thirst will never be quenched. Jesus experienced the feeling of forsakenness. This this moment of forsakenness when holy God could not look on the sin borne by His Son on the cross led to a, a, a temporary spiritual drought in Jesus' life. And so He cried out, I thirst. Think about your life, about your walk with the Lord for, for just a moment. Are you in a spiritual drought? Do you find yourself in a dry spell this morning? You find yourself in the desert spiritually? In that moment, Jesus said, I thirst. However, now he cries out, Father. Now, don't miss that. This moment of wrath, of God's wrath, has now passed. Intimacy is restored. And as Jesus did many times throughout his earthly ministry, he cries, Father. The first time Jesus referred to His heavenly Father, you remember the story, it's at the end of Luke chapter 2, they were returning from, from Jerusalem and, and, and Mary and Joseph and, and the crowd was going along and they suddenly realized that they had lost their child. Jesus wasn't with them. Has that ever happened to you? That's a bad feeling, isn't it? When you temporarily misplace your child. We left one of ours at, at church one time. We were in two different cars and, and uh, we got home and realized, where's our child. I've told you the story before. I won't go into it now about Jonathan hiding from me in, uh, under the clothing rack at the department store. I thought I was going to, you know, just anyway. It was a tough moment. So Mary and Joseph, so anxious, return to Jerusalem and they find Jesus where? In the temple, listening and asking questions. And the scholars are so impressed with his knowledge and his, his apparent understanding. And don't you know how Mary and Joseph felt when they finally laid eyes on 12-year-old Jesus? There he is. He's in the temple. And, and they say, why have you done this to us? Your father and I have sought you anxiously. And how did Jesus respond? Do you not know that I must be about my father's business? Those are the first spoken words of Jesus recorded in, a, in, in Scripture. And he's talking about his father's Business, And then in the Sermon on the Mount, he, he speaks of his father 17 times. In the farewell discourse, John chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, he speaks of his father 51 times. For the last time on this earth, as Jesus lays down his life, he calls for his father. In his classic book, Knowing God, if you've never read Knowing God... It's, it's a book you need to read for your uh, Christian life. J.I. Packer wrote, If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, Everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctly Christian rather than merely Jewish, is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. What does it mean for God to be our Heavenly Father? What are the implications for our life as we walk with the Lord and as we're, we're trying to be faithful? 
Well, as we think about Jesus' relationship with His Heavenly Father, look at, look at these implications. First of all, it implies authority. The Father commanded the Son, and the Son submitted to the Father's authority. The Father commanded, and the Son obeyed. Jesus came to do the will of His heavenly Father. As Paul wrote, he was, he was obedient. He was obedient even to the point of death. Even death on the cross. If we are serious about following Jesus, then we need to be fully committed, and that needs to be expressed in total obedience. Total obedience. Jesus said in John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And that doesn't mean we pick and choose which commandments we keep. That doesn't mean that anything He commands is, is optional for us. It's all a command. It's all expected. It means that everything He expects us to do, that's, that, that's part of saying yes to Jesus and following Him. It implies authority. Second, it implies affection. The Father loved the Son. The Son loves the Father. There's, there's that deep love and that deep affection. Third, it implies fellowship. Even though Jesus experienced that moment of forsakenness, He was not alone. He was not alone. The Father was with Him. And, and, and then communion was restored and intimacy was, was restored. That's what God wants for our life. God pursues a, a personal relationship with us that is real, that is intimate, that is deepening every day. It implies fellowship. Fourth, it implies honor. The Father honors the Son. The Son honors the Father. Packer points out that this father-child relationship is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. How blessed we are that, God's, that, that Jesus' Father is also our Father. Our Heavenly Father. If we have received Jesus Christ as Savior, then, then we belong to God's family and God is our Heavenly Father. We have a perfect Heavenly Father. That means God loves us. He cares for us. He takes care of us in every way. When's the last time you thought about what it means to be a child of God and to have, have a Heavenly Father? Do we just take that for granted? Are we so used to it that we don't even think about it? Do you cherish this, this wonderful relationship we have with our Heavenly Father? Second, Jesus affirms total trust. Total trust in His Heavenly Father. Now these words that He speaks, if you look at the little footnotes, uh, uh, the little notes in your margin, if you have those, come directly from a prayer that was was. Recorded in Psalm chapter 31. Again, Jesus knows Scripture. Jesus lived with Scripture. Jesus is dying with Scripture on His lips. This prayer comes from, from a great hymn of trust and confidence in God found in the Psalms. Je Jesus voiced this prayer, but as He voiced this prayer, He was addressing it to His Heavenly Father. This verse from Psalm 31.5 was the first prayer that every Jewish mother taught her child during bedtime prayers. This, this is their version of, of now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. So Jesus was familiar with His prayer. 
A Jewish child would learn, into your hands I commend my spirit. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Lord, I, I trust you to take care of me and to keep me safe as I fall asleep tonight. I trust you to be working in me and around me because you never sleep. You never slumber. Jesus died as He lived, not only with Scripture on His lips, but with a great trust in His heavenly Father. With much confidence, Jesus never worried because He always trusted. He never feared because He always walked in faith. He never grew anxious because He always prayed and, and, and let go and let God. He gave it to God. What does Jesus teach us about worry? Let's just go back to basics this morning. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, if you would, please. You're familiar with these words, but we need to hear them every so often because we need to apply them to our lives. And maybe, maybe for somebody this morning, this passage of Scripture is going to speak very clearly and very uh, accurately and very forcefully to whatever burden you brought in here this morning that we need to give to the Lord. So on the... Towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been preaching this wonderful Sermon on the Mount. <clears throat> he begins in verse 35, Therefore I say to you, or 25 rather, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more of more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubic to his statue? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into, into the oven... Will He not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. He's saying this is, this is the behavior of unbelievers. That's what He's saying there. In other words, we know better. We should behave differently. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness... And all these things shall be added unto you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. You know what the bottom line of worry is? Worry indicates that we are not trusting in God. If we worry, then we're not trusting. If we're trusting, then we won't worry. They're mutually exclusive. Confidence indicates that we trust in God. Worry indicates we do not trust in God. Which characterizes your life the most right this moment? Worry or trust? Jesus, hanging on the cross, nailed to that cross, beaten, tortured, bloodied, our sin laid on Him. Suffering separation from God momentarily. Fighting the feeling of forsakenness. 
experiencing that spiritual drought and crying out, I thirst. Jesus, bearing all of this suffering, teaches us from the cross how to trust in God. Teaches us that God is worthy of our trust. That we must place our confidence in God. There was a purpose Jesus knew that this was not accidental. Jesus knew that this, what was happening here was not mere circumstance. This was God's plan. In fact, this moment was the climax of God's plan. So Jesus faithfully followed through because He had complete trust in His heavenly Father. Do we have that kind of trust in our heavenly Father? The hour had come. The deed had been done. Scripture had been fulfilled. His mission had been complete. He was the sacrificial lamb. He was the substitute for mankind. It was time now to slip out of this life on earth and to return to His Father in heaven. Hours before His death, Jesus told His disciples, Behold, the hour is at hand. And the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hand of sinners. Matthew chapter 26, verse 45. At this moment, sinful hands had bound Jesus, had beaten Jesus, slapped Jesus, nailed Jesus, lifted Jesus on that cross into place where He stood and where He hung. But Jesus knew that sinful hands were not ultimately in control. God was in control and Jesus was completely trusting His heavenly Father. That's why he would say, into your hands I commit my spirit. Not, not their hands, not sinful hands, not sinners' hands did he commit his spirit, but into his Father's hands. And as he did so, don't miss this, he was acknowledging that his future was in his Father's hands. Tim Hansen wrote an essay entitled, The Road of Life. Listen to this. At first, I saw God as my observer, my judge, keeping track of all things that I did wrong so that I'd know whether or not I merited heaven or hell when I die. He, he was sort of out there like a president. But later on when I met Christ, it seemed as though life were rather like a, a bike ride. But it was a tandem bike, and I noticed that Christ was in the back helping me pedal. I don't know just when it was that he suggested that we change places, but life hasn't been the same since. When I had control, I knew the way. It was rather boring, but predictable. It was the shortest way between two points. But when he took the lead, he knew delightful long cuts up mountains and through rocky places at breakneck speeds. It was all I could do to hang on. And even though it looked like madness, he said, pedal. Keep on pedaling. I was worried and anxious and asked, where are you taking me? And he laughed and didn't answer. And I started to learn to trust. I forgot my boring life and entered into the adventure. And when I said, I'm scared... He just leaned back and, and touched my hand. I did not trust him at first in control of my life. I thought he'd wreck it. 
But he knows bike secrets. He knows how to bend to take a sharp corner. He knows how to jump to clear high rocks. He knows how to fly to short and scary passages. And I'm learning to shut up and pedal in the strangest places. And I'm beginning to enjoy the view and the cool breeze on my face with my delightful, constant companion, Jesus Christ. And when I'm sure I can't do it anymore, He just smiles and He says, Pedal. Keep on pedaling. Let me ask you a question. If your life is a tandem bike, which seat are you sitting in this morning? Who is your constant companion? Where are you getting your instructions from? Are you in the front seat or the back seat? Will you affirm your trust in your Heavenly Father today? Third, Jesus completely surrenders to His Heavenly Father. Completely surrenders to His Heavenly Father. Matthew 27, 50 records, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up His Spirit. The word yielded means that Jesus sent away His Spirit from Himself. He dismissed His Spirit. The verb is in a voice that speaks of volitional choice. In other words, Jesus was in complete control even to the end. He chose the very moment that He he sent His Spirit back into heaven to His heavenly Father. Throughout His ministry, Jesus was completely yielded. Jesus was totally surrendered to His heavenly Father. For example, when, when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, He lived by every word of God. When Lazarus died and Lazarus' sisters summoned Jesus to come heal their brother, Jesus showed up on his own clock, on his own timetable, and not on the sisters' timetable. He delayed two days and then traveled to Bethany. His priority was to bring glory to God. Bringing glory to God was his chief aim and his chief motivator in all that he did. Every miracle He did not only taught a spiritual lesson, but it brought glory to God and it pointed men and women to a supernatural Heavenly Father. In all things, Jesus submitted Himself to the Father. What do we find Jesus doing just before His arrest? He's wrestling in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, pouring out His agony and His heart to God. And even then, He submitted to God. He yielded to God. Not not your will. Not my will, but your will. Have you fully surrendered your life and your will to our Heavenly Father? Sometimes we sing, I surrender all. All to Him I owe. But we sing it with that little asterisk by it, don't we? Not really, God, because I'm holding on to some of it. But I'm singing it. I surrender all. But not really, God. Jesus completely surrendered to His Heavenly Father. Have you fully surrendered your life to our Heavenly Father? Surrender means to relinquish our rights and to give up control to whatever we think is ours. To relinquish our rights 
We're all about our rights in this nation, aren't we? And we're sudden, certainly all about control. Because as you've heard me say many times, oftentimes we think we're smarter than God. God doesn't know what He's doing. He doesn't really know how to pedal our bike. We think we know how to pedal our bike better than He does. When we surrender to God, we acknowledge that we belong to Him. He is truly our Heavenly Father and we are truly His child. And He knows better than we know. And that He's in charge of our lives. We're not in charge of our lives. Surrender means to overcome our obstinance and to live in total obedience to God. When we absolutely and totally surrender to Jesus, we're saying that we trust Jesus completely. We're overcoming our fear. We're overcoming our pride. We're overcoming anything that's holding us back. And we are fully relying on Jesus. Admitting our limitations. Fully relying upon God. That, that is the bottom line of surrender. Letting go and letting God. Letting God have control. What does surrender look like? Here are five areas that maybe you need to work on this morning. Maybe I need to work on. You may think of other areas. You're welcome to expand this outline. What else in your life do we need to work on? I've just mentioned the first one. First of all, let go of control. We're trying to control every aspect of our lives, don't we? When we surrender, we yield to God. And we allow Him to have control of every part of our life. And we trust in Him as we submit ourselves to Him. Completely. Totally. A.W. Tozer wrote, The reason why many are still troubled, still seeking, still making little forward progress, speaking spiritually, Forward progress is because they haven't yet come to the end of themselves. We're still trying to give the orders and interfering with God's work within us. Does that describe your life? Have you put that together, that uh, two and two together? God can't completely do His work and have His will carried out in our lives if we're interfering with His work. And we interfere with His work when we try to hold on and, and control most of us have a hard time giving up control, don't we? Second, let go of worry. We read about that a few moments ago, the words of Jesus. Let's be honest. Are you a chronic worrier? Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 6 that worry is a waste of time, a waste of mental energy and emotional energy, that nothing good comes out of worry. Nothing can worry cannot improve your life in any way, shape, or form. We need to give up our worry and cultivate trust in God as we walk with Him day by day and moment by moment. We're like that bicyclist. It's something we have to learn. But we have to make the decision. Today is the day that I let go of worry and I start trusting in God. So let go of worry. Third, let go of money. That's one of the things we try to control, isn't it? Money can become an idol. Anything can become an idol. Our favorite pursuit can become an idol if we put it ahead of God and God will tolerate no idols. Money is not an end in itself. It is a tool that God entrusts to us 
to use wisely as we follow biblical money management principles. We use the money God entrusts to us not only to, to, to be responsible stewards in terms of, uh, of living as best we can debt-free, in terms of, of living um, within our means, in terms of, of uh, being responsible money managers, but we also use the money in God, God entrusts to us to glorify Him and to help advance the gospel. To help carry out the work of ministry to, through the local church. To help bless people as we have been blessed. So let go of money. Fourth, let go of your relationships. Now what do I mean by that? Let me give you an example. Take, for example, your children when they leave home and, and they grow up and they get out on their own. There's a point when they're no longer under your roof and you can't control them, can you? You still pray for them. You're still concerned about them. But now they're making their own decisions. And you may not agree with some of those decisions. They're making choices that you can't control. They're making decisions that, that you can't control. That's why, why you still have them, and even grandparents, while they're under your influence, when you have them however long you have them, uh, an hour here, three hours there, you can pour into them and set a biblical foundation and, and raise them on the rock of God's Word, on the, on the rock of, of, of Jesus being the rock of their lives, and point them as best you can to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't make them get saved. It has to be their decision when they come of age. But you can do everything you can while you still have them to help them turn out the way that would be pleasing to our Heavenly Father. But there's only so much we can do. At some point, we have to entrust them to God, don't we? So that's what I mean when I say let go of your relationships. Let go and let God. Fifth, let go of your future. By that I mean live one day at a time. What was it Jesus said in, in chapter 6, verse 34? He said, Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. In other words, God has given you today. Live for Him today. Be responsible today. Do what He prioritized today. Do what He leads you to do today. Be on mission today. Be sensitive to divine appointments today. Be willing to speak up for Jesus today. Try to glorify God with today. And then when tomorrow comes, deal with tomorrow. Now that doesn't mean don't plan for tomorrow. That doesn't mean don't save for a rainy day. He's just saying tomorrow's not here yet. Deal with today. Yesterday's gone. You can't change yesterday, so don't spend needless mental and emotional energy worrying about yesterday. You can't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow hadn't come yet. Live your life today to the glory of God. That's what we mean when I say let go of your future. Live your life to the fullest, fullest today. Trust God with the unknowns of tomorrow as you yield to Him today. Are you trusting God with your future Think for just a moment about that glorious instant, that glorious moment in which the price for our sin was paid and Jesus once again had fellowship and communion and intimacy with His heavenly Father. And in that moment, 
He did not say, he moved from saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then suddenly, the moment it passed, and now he's saying, Father. Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Have you seen on the news from time to time those moving and tearful homecomings, those, those reunions that they show every so often? Several years ago, the Today Show featured the moment that U.S. Navy sailor Bill Haas returned after being deployed in Iraq for seven months. When he returned, he wanted to surprise his six-year-old son, John. John had no idea that his dad was back and his dad showed up unexpected to his kindergarten class. And John looked up, and there was some man in uniform across the room. And then as he looked, he realized it was his dad, and he cried out, Daddy! Daddy! And he bolted across the room and jumped into his father's arms. What a moving moment. Have you this morning grown apart from your heavenly Father? Have you allowed distance to come between you and God, not because He's moved, but because you've pursued other pursuits, you've drifted away, you've wandered far away from your Heavenly Father? Have you allowed distance to characterize your relationship? I encourage you to return today. I encourage you to return to your Heavenly Father this morning so you can say, Father. Maybe you don't know Jesus Christ as personal Savior. That's that's the first decision you need to make. You need to come to Jesus this morning and be sure that you are saved. We can help you with that decision. If you're watching online, reach out to us by email. Let us get with you and share with you what God's Word says. Even this morning, as you hang around and visit with me for a moment, let us be sure that you know for certain that you have eternal life and you're going to heaven when you die. Life's most important decision. You come into the family of God. You can call our Heavenly Father, Father, and you know for sure you're going to heaven when you leave this earth. Maybe you've been saved, but you have not yet followed through in baptism, by immersion, scriptural baptism. Let's talk about that. That's an important, important decision. We can baptize you next Sunday morning if you're saved. Easter Sunday morning is a great time to be baptized as we celebrate the risen Lord. Maybe God's speaking to you about moving membership in the life of this church. Let's have that conversation. What it means, what's required, the significance spiritually of making that commitment. Moving from being an attender to belonging to this church family as God leads in your life. Father, we thank you so much for these words from the cross. We thank you, Lord, for what Jesus did for us. And especially, Lord, that intimacy was reestablished with His Heavenly Father, Lord, our Heavenly Father, and that we too can know Jesus as our Savior and be in the family of God. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Lord, for what you did on the cross for us so that we might have eternal life. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.